Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 139. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Glad to be here. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. You can like me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page where you can also watch this podcast. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, at the top of the page, you've got all my social media buttons. And while you're there, you can give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly of the same title. While you're also at brianmcclanahan.com, if you want to support the podcast, go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. And you can help support The Brian McClanahan Show. If you want to support The Brian McClanahan Show and get a free, well, not free, get some cool stuff for it, you can go to mclanahanacademy.com and you can subscribe there. It's always free to subscribe, but, of course, the courses are not free. So you can go out there and check that out. Uh, also, if you want to get me in another educational endeavor, you can go to learntruehistory.com and you can subscribe there. You can uh, have some courses by me along with other great faculty members like Tom Woods and Kevin Goodsman. So it's a great opportunity to get a liberty education. And, of course, you can always get your Brian McClanahan gear at redbubble.com. Just go on out and do a search for Brian McClanahan. You've got my logo on a number of great products. So go on out to redbubble.com and you can get that material too. Okay, so today I want to talk about an interesting issue, and this is kind of a Think Locally, Act Locally uh, podcast because I talk about local all the time. Now, local doesn't always mean rural, but most people seem to associate local with small towns, small communities. And of course, I've talked a lot on this show about small is beautiful and uh, the idea that when you look at uh, medieval towns, for example, a large town had maybe a thousand people in it. And so that's the size of your subdivision today. But one of the things we're always told, and even I'm, I'm going to read you a Wall Street Journal piece that came out on December 29th. One of the things we're always told is that uh, urban is better. And I think Americans have been programmed into that really in the last, say, half century. And it was really in that last half century that we've seen a shift in population trends. In fact, it's been more pronounced in the north rather than the south. And in fact, by the early 20th century, more northerners were living in urban and suburban environments than in rural environments. But that was not the case in the south. In fact, in 1930, uh, roughly 70% of Southerners still lived in rural areas. Uh, and so it wasn't until, say, the middle of the 20th century and beyond, about the 1960s, that you started to see more and more Americans, the majority of Americans, living in urban or suburban areas. And so that's a byproduct of our changing economy. Most people are not farmers anymore. Whereas in the early 20th century and before that, you had a large number of farmers in America. And of course, that's the, 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 the process there has been the industrialization of farming, and you have large agribusiness now. So the fa small farmer is disappearing, though there is a trend pushing back the other way. You have people talking about uh, you know, using your local farms to get your product, your produce, your animals, your vegetables, your fruits. And that's because you know these farmers, you know where these things come from. A lot of these farms are organic or uh, you know, certified organic, uh, so they're producing, they're not using any pesticides or herbicides, and uh, they're, they're producing product that you can feel good about consuming. And so you start think, seeing things like farmer's markets and other places. I know where I live in the, in the spring, beginning in the spring and all the way through 
uh, into the fall. They have a wonderful farmer's market where people from all over the place come out and uh, they, they sell their products. A lot of these people are organic farmers or hydroponic farmers. Hydroponic farming is just an amazing thing when you can grow lettuce and other greens and things like that in a greenhouse. And, of course, you don't need any pesticides at that point because there's nothing that's going to get in there. So uh, there's actually a local farmer here that does hydroponic hydroponic farming for lettuce and spinach and other things, and it's the best stuff you've ever had. His lettuce is so good. Uh, but so you have that, uh, that process of people rethinking uh, this, this particular type of economy in these, in these societies. But we're always told, and I'm going to read this piece by the Wall Street Journal, we're always told that urban is better. Now, the interesting thing about all this, and the title of this piece is actually uh, One Nation Divisible. And that's an interesting title. Because when you look back at American history, and I'm going to give you a little historical perspective about this too. When you look back at American history, what you find in American history has always been a rural-urban split. Always. It's always been there. In fact, go back to the late 18th century and look at the division between the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans. This primarily was a rural-urban split, though you did have some Federalists in, uh, that uh, were on large plantations in the South, and that's because they were tied into the commercial economy. And they were making money on northern manufacturing and commerce. And you also had some a large number of Democratic Republicans in urban areas because uh, in the north because these people were laborers. And so they saw the Democratic Republican Party, or that faction, I should say, it wasn't a political party yet, as maybe a vehicle uh, to get what they wanted, which was, in their mind, a more democratic situation. But you've always had that rural-urban split, and so when the Federalists threatened secession in 1794, Rufus King and Oliver Ellsworth, this is what they were talking about. They're looking, they're surveying the scene. They're seeing that more Americans are farmers, and they really don't stand a chance in the halls of Congress. They really don't stand a chance to win the executive branch. And so this is why they cornered John Taylor of Carolina and said, John, look, we got to get out of this thing. This is, this is not working for us. It's not working for the North. And then, of course, moving forward in time, you go to the election of Jefferson in 18, uh, 1800, 1801, when he was finally elected by the, by the House of Representatives. And you look at the problem there. Again, it was a fear by these New England Federalists that somehow these farmers were going to take over the government. And they were going to dramatically change the character of the United States. It was going to be much more Jeffersonian. And they were right about that. You know, America was Jeffersonian up until about 1861. But even after that, there was still somewhat of a Jeffersonian character. Uh, though we were seeing much more centralization. And centralization fosters urbanization. It fosters a mercantile economy. We live in a neo-mercantile economy today. There's no doubt about it. We don't live in a laissez-faire, free market economy. It's a neo-mercantile economy. It's a Hamiltonian economy. And so then you, you go forward, 1803, you get the Louisiana Purchase. Again, another threat of secession from New England Federalists. Why? Because you're going to add all this territory in the United States, and who's going to live there? A bunch of farmers in rural areas. And so they're afraid about that. This is why the New England was threatening secession again in 1815, because they wanted out. They thought these farmers are going to dominate the government in forever. We're never going to control the halls of Congress. We're never going to control the executive branch. So we need to get out. So this is the rural-urban split that has been so much a part of American history. And the South has long embodied that rural area more than anywhere else. Of course, you throw in the West, too, and as more Americans move West. And they and if you've ever been out West, maybe you're listening to this podcast out West. Maybe you're living in the East, you've never been out West. Or maybe you live out West. And if you're from the West, you realize that Washington, D.C. is a long way away. That that federal city 
It's nowhere near where I live. And so you start to think of things, again, more internally, more locally. It's amazing to me how tied in, say, California is to Washington, D.C. I guess, you know, two coasts, uh, birds of a feather flock together uh, because they're more interested in centralization. But California, California, a long ways away from Washington, D.C., you would think these people would be much more independent and much more locally minded. And I think in many ways they are. In fact, you find that the green movement, when it comes to organic farming and other things, is very popular in California, this local economy, uh, because they can do a lot of that there. And so they have a much more independent spirit in that way. But, of course, they want everyone to live like them. It's kind of the the imperialist, cultural imperialist, ment- imperialist mentality that came out of New England. It's really uh, affected California and other parts of the United States. But the fact is... This rural-urban split is an important part of America, and I do think that we need to revitalize our rural communities. And one of the things you can do, and I'm going to talk about it again uh, in the next episode of The Brian McClanahan Show, and it's, it's create kind of a cultural continuity. You know, in, in small towns, everybody does know everybody, and there is a cultural continuity there. And sometimes that can be... Uh, detrimental when it comes to public health, and sometimes it can't. And so this this piece gets into that a little bit, but I think it's it's stretching it. What they're trying to do is say that, hey, urban areas are good, and rural areas stink. But the internet and other things allows in, in local farming uh, this this idea of creating very small minded communities. Not small minded in terms of you don't you know you're, you're uh, you know close minded, but small minded that you're thinking locally and acting locally. You can create an environment where people can exist in that and still have a very healthy, productive life. The Internet is the great level. It's the great equalizer and all that. You can, you can have e-commerce. You can, start, you can do things online that you could never do before. And uh, you know, years ago when there was that book, The World is Flat, I started talking about how the Internet was creating uh, billionaires and millionaires out of you know, local areas and how this was making the world smaller. One of the things that you can look at with that, of course, is the idea that you can have smaller type economies and that they can be vibrant economies, even in small towns, and that we don't need a Walmart. We don't need a big box store to come into our area as long as we support the people in our area. But also, not just that, you can try to make a business and a go of it through the Internet and have a productive income, and if everyone learned how to live within their means and not use credit and other things, this would also help create an environment where you could have a much more productive local and small economy. But let me let me get into some of the things in this piece, and I'm going to read, it's not long, but I'm going to read some of these. They had a number of charts, and I don't have the charts in front of me, but uh, again, the, t- the title of the piece is in the Wall Street Journal, December 29th, 2017, One Nation Divisible, the divide between America's prosperous cities and struggling small towns in 20 charts. So from the beginning, they're telling you the cities are prosperous and small towns. No, no, no. Small towns are not prosperous. Small towns are bad. Cities, good. Small towns, bad. You can see the bias already. And in some ways, I remember, you know, some people like cities. There are more conveniences, more opportunities there and some things. But also more crime, more problems. Small towns offer a way out of that for a lot of people. But the piece starts this. About one in seven Americans lives in rural parts of the country, 1,800 counties that sit outside any metropolitan area. 
So one in seven, not even a large number. A generation ago, most of these places had working economies, a strong social fabric, and a way of life that drew a steady stream of urban migrants. Today, many are in crisis. Populations are aging. More working-age adults collect disability, and trends in teen pregnancy and divorce are diverging from the worse from metro areas. Bank lending and business startups are falling behind, and here is the data that tells the story. For decades, as migration to America's small towns rose and fell, they barely managed to keep growing. Rural families formed and had just enough children to offset losses from those who left and those who died. More recently, fewer young adults stayed or returned home after college or from distant jobs. That meant fewer marriages and fewer children. City-weary arrivals dwindled as well, meaning populations have shrunk. So here is one of the population trends. People thinking they have to go to the cities to get a job. And again, as I just mentioned, there are ways around that today. And one of the things, this, this article actually contrasts some of the things that millennials are, are doing. There are more and more millennials looking to get out of the cities, young people who want to go to a rural area and be a farmer. They want to get their feet back in the dirt, their hands in the dirt. They want to get back to that and kind of you know, grow something. In the 1990s, a few rural areas began to record more de- deaths than births. Then the deep recession of 2007-2009 lowered U.S. birth rates and slowed migration and immigration. Collectively, all of rural America now faces the grim prospect of natural decrease, meaning more deaths than births over time. Few immigrants are moving to rural areas. Most seek work and neighbors in places that are familiar, which largely means urban areas. This has opened a cultural gulf between diverse growing cities and mostly white aging small towns. So here the Wall Street Journal is saying this is bad, uh, that this homogenous area, it's bad. You don't want that. You don't want, I mean, you, cities offer diversity and more immigrants. Uh, and what you saw in the last election is Americans saying, no, that's not necessarily what we want. Uh, we, we want to have this homogenous community. We want to know who the people are. We want, it, we want to be familiar. Now, they're saying that's okay for immigrants to be familiar and live in cities, but it's not okay for anyone else in America to want that same type of thing. That's what you're getting. Now, remember, the Wall Street Journal is supposedly conservative, but what they really are is corporatist. And so this is, they don't really care. There's not really a culture to preserve for the Wall Street Journal except banking. Social trends have weakened rural families. Couples marry earlier in rural areas, but marriages can founder in a shaky economy. Among women ages 20 to 34 live in rural areas, 6.5% are divorced, compared with 3.6% of their counterparts in large cities. One reason is that almost two-thirds of city women in that age group have never been married, compared with just half of rural women. Later marriages means fewer opportunities for divorce. So here we have a swipe at marriage, and they're going to get into this. Now, of course, we can talk about when the ideal age is for marriage and uh, when should a woman get married, when should a man get married, uh, when are they ready to be married, can they have some financial stability, are they ready in their lives to put that type of commitment forward and those type of things. But um, this is, uh, I think the Wall Street Journal is decidedly coming down in an an anti-traditional sense here. A continuing public health campaign to limit teenage births has produced a related urban-rural gap. The campaign includes education programs to and access to contraceptives. While teen births are falling around the U.S., they are falling much faster in urban areas where the campaigns have been more effective. One factor behind falling teen birth rates, rising college attendance by women. In 2015, for the first time, the share of women ages 25 and older who had at least a bachelor's degree topped that of men. Women earned 57% of new bachelor's degrees, This tide has risen most sharply in large cities 
and their suburbs. So here again, it's pushing a particular narrative, subtly, but pushing a narrative. Now, uh, is that even, this is where we get into things like, is a college degree even necessary at times, particularly when you acquire the amount of debt you have to acquire to go get a college degree? Uh, that's, uh, that's problematic. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can go out and get a skilled trade and still make a lot of money. I mean, and, uh, where I work, there are people going out and getting degrees in welding and HVAC and making six figures doing those jobs and enjoying it. They don't have any debt. They've gone out and got a six-figure job, and they have no debt. Now, that is financial liberation and freedom, and these are the things we should be pushing. That provides, of course, with these skilled trades— uh, particularly if, uh, you know, in a small town, you might have a few people that can do some skills and some people can. This is where you have to get into a community that works. Uh, but you're not going to make six figures in a small town being an HVAC guy um, because there's just not going to be as much work. You'd have to go around. So that does factor into it. Um, but again, if you don't if you don't live beyond your means, you don't need that kind of money. Education gaps have long-term consequences. More jobs, especially full-time jobs with benefits, require a bachelor's or advanced degree. Without a larger share of college graduates, small towns have little hope of closing the income gap. But again, it's what you do with your money that matters. The recession hammered Americans' net worth, which has been slipping for years in rural areas for many families. The bulk of their net worth is in home equity. The housing market boom and collapse hit fast-growing suburbs hardest but didn't spare small towns. The stock market boom and resurgent urban home prices have largely benefited upper-income households, widening the urban-rural gap and family net worth. And again, when you get into these type of things and you're looking at the uh, government or central banking-manipulated economy and you start looking at net worth and your home value, that's a problem because most people are in debt for these things, and so they really don't have any any wealth anyways. Uh, if, If you don't own your home outright, you have debt. And debt is not income. Debt is not um, net worth. And you'd have to get somebody to buy. It's like saying I've got this stock of uh, these trinkets that are worth such and such a praise, but if nobody buys it, they're just trinkets that are worth nothing. The only time you really have net worth is when you actually have money in your hand or money somewhere you can access liquid assets very quickly. That's worth. That's that's net uh, wealth. That's when you have debt or something that you could sell, but it would take some time. That's you can't really eat these trinkets. You can't eat your house. You can, of course, in an urban in a, in a rural area, grow your own food. Or you can have a small little uh, farm in your backyard or something like that, where you could provide for your family if you had to. The violent crime rate for major cities has fallen enough to match that of small towns, wiping out much of the safety premium that rural Americans once enjoyed. Now, there's a chart for this, which I don't have in front of me. Uh, it depends on where you live, of course. This shift weakens one of the motives to move from urban to rural areas, especially for families with children. It depends on where you live and what kind of crime you're going to be facing, but uh, there's no doubt about it. Urban areas are still much less safe than rural areas, without question. You do have some, some petty crime problems, and this says violent crime, uh, but it's um, again, it depends on where you live. Circumstances behind rural poverty vary. For instance, among American Indian reservations, migrant worker settlements, and small towns that lose employers, rural poverty has persistently run higher than urban poverty. Men in rural areas are working less. They are typically older and less educated than their urban counterparts, reducing the number of jobs they're eligible for and the pay they can secure. Rates of disability among small town workers have been 
long been higher, partly due to such physically taxing jobs as farming and mining. The rates are rising faster, too, in part because rural workers tend to be older. War areas have seen their share of business establishments shrink along with the share of population. One cause is a lack of capital for new or small businesses. Adjusted for inflation, loans by banks of less than $1 million haven't recovered in rural areas since the recession. The past couple of decades, better prevention and treatment have produced gains against heart disease, the nation's number one killer. The biggest improvements occurred in large cities thanks to lower smoking rates, widespread cholesterol-lowering drugs, and better emergency care, among other factors. The same pattern appears in death rates from cancer, the number two killer in the U.S. Rates have fallen sharply in major cities and barely in rural areas. The best gains stem from prevention, screening, and treatment that requires good primary care, events, surgical treatments, and drug trials at specialized hospitals. Diabetes rates among indicate an ominous long-term problem for rural areas. They are higher than in urban areas and rising faster. So, health, public health, they're saying it's more healthy to live in cities. you got more access to medical care. Now, of course, this, this is partly true. You do have more access. But I think what a lot of Americans, and this comes down to education, and this is why you still have access to things in rural areas, but a lot of things is preventative treatment eating a proper diet, getting the proper amount of exercise, doing the things that are important to prevent these nasty diseases. And if you grow your own food in your backyard and you start looking at uh, eating better, which would be um, getting more fruits and vegetables, for example, this was something that people in rural areas could long do. They could get those things where people in urban areas could not. But here we clearly see, and I think the important part of this piece, we do have, still have, in 21st century America, an urban-rural split. It's been around since the late 18th century. That process has continued. The assault is still the same. These people are backwards, they're unhealthy, they're uneducated, they're poor, they're whatever they are. And people that live in cities are better. It's Oz. Here's the shining city, the Oz. You want to get out of rural Kansas, and you want to get to Oz. Because it's better. And there you're going to face higher taxes, more crime, greater noise pollution, greater air pollution, more congestion, more stress. So the key is trying to figure out how to manage, how to do something that could get you in a situation in a small town where you could make it. And again, part of that key, I think, is the Internet, which is the great leveler. Uh, going out and trying to make a business online. Now, you may not be extremely wealthy, but if you can find a niche, if you can find something that you can do to make some money, if you can get a, if you can get a professional degree that's transportable, well, they talk about the fact that a lot of in this piece, a lot of rural t- towns don't have hospitals anymore, and that's true, and that's partly because of the mandates that come down from the general government. These small town hospitals had to close up, but. Uh, Looking at uh, medical care and other things, some of the key is, of course, preventative treatment Uh, and and also making sure that if you do have a professional job, you do you can market yourself in rural areas. People need things, too. You just may not make as much money. You have to make a decision. Do you want to make as much money or do you want to have a better quality of life? Now, there aren't as many opportunities for kids for your children in small towns. They have to go away. And that talks about it. Kids go away to college and they come back. But there are more and more opportunities out there, even for education online and other things that you could do where your kids wouldn't even have to leave. So uh, certainly there are some advantages to living in cities. 
Uh, but there's also some advantages to living in small towns. And, um, you know, having grown up in one, a small town, and now living in a large city, I can tell you the small town environment is much preferable to the, to the large city environment. And um, I think that, you know, when you, when you look at it, uh, I would, it would be uh, if more Americans could think about that, could try to revitalize these small towns, you would see something special out of that. Think locally, act locally. If you live in a small town or something, try to revitalize that town. If that's where you are, there's something great about the nature of the small town, knowing everybody and having that type of an environment. It is a much more comforting environment. And the last election proves that these people still vote and they still matter. And these slaps at small towns and people that live there are uh, simply coming from a corporatist elite. This is the elite versus the deplorables. Uh, so this is what you have in America, and I think that uh, you know my hope is that more and more people will see that and try to look beyond that and maybe try to rescue these towns from uh, some, some, some of the economic and social malaise that they have. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>